So uh, a couple days ago, I opened my phone and I was looking on USA Today. USA Today is kind of my default news site where I go to read headlines of what's going on in the world. And um, the second headline from the top was one that says, Jury Awards Hulk Hogan $140 million. I don't know if you know Hulk Hogan. He was a childhood icon of mine, professional wrestler in the WWF, now known as the WWE. I had Hulk Hogan, like, stretchy figure doll as a kid, and I played with it so much, I'm not kidding, that his arm fell off. It was a rubber doll that was indestructible, except I destroyed it. Um, Hulk Hogan was it. And so I clicked on this story, curious as to what happened. I kind of wish I hadn't clicked on it because of what happened. You may know the story. It's, it's not a good one. Um, Someone came up and, and videoed him uh, having an affair, having uh, sex with uh, a woman who wasn't his wife. It was his best friend's wife. And anyway, someone held a camera up to his window at his house and, and then sold that video to Gawker, right? Gawker's a news compilation gossip site. And, um, and Gawker published it and all this. Hulk Hogan sued Gawker and won $140 million. That was the story. It was really interesting in that story as um, Gawker was trying to defend their actions. They said this was literally their defense. That's the price of being a celebrity. That people go into your backyard and (laughs) snoop around and video you. Um, It was really curious. But the really curious thing about that is why, why news sites like Gawker or TMZ why they even exist, like what is up with this fascination with celebrity gossip and and just all of the the juice of the world and the news and and all the details, right? Um, We as a society are are fascinated and captivated by all of this information that really doesn't matter. But why are we so captivated about it? What is it about gossip that we love? We love knowing things about people. We love the juicy details about people's lives and about their hearts and about their stories, good or bad or weird. We just love that stuff. It's the same reason why you and I, it's really hard to not gossip. It's hard to call your friends out on gossip. It's hard to say, hey, y'all, we should stop talking about that. Because that knowledge, that information, is power. We can then go on and, and say it to someone else and they laugh at us or they think we're cool or they think we're in the know. Right? Knowledge and information is power. We love the juicy details of all this. Um, tonight in this passage, uh, actually in this whole, this whole next four weeks in the book of Ruth, we get access to the juicy details of a love story. And it is, now that The Bachelor's over, it's as much drama as you can handle. Okay, so get ready. You're about to see 1,400 years ago ancient Near Eastern drama like on steroids in this passage. And it is a wonderful love story. It's a story of uh, a woman named Ruth primarily. And we'll, we'll meet Ruth tonight. We'll meet uh, the guy who sweeps her off her feet next week named Boaz. So it's a love story. It's got all these juicy details. But, but it actually is a love story of a greater degree too. And we'll see that tonight in this passage. So, before, um, or without further ado, let's read. Let's get some of the juicy details, then we're going to talk about it and how God meets us in that stuff. From Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. 
The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of two sons were Malon and Chilion. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the, other, the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt so kindly with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you, may, that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from, me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred, again, was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Naomi, as in Hebrew, means sweet. Call me Mara. Mara in Hebrew means bitter. Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, was with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. These are the juicy details that set us up for this tremendous love story. Now, there's a lot here, and, and they're not all super exciting tonight, right? There's this kind of drama and this tragedy that, that sets up what will be this love story. So what are the juicy de- details? Let's, let's talk about them for just a minute. But we're not just going to talk about the details. We're actually going to look in just a moment to find God in these juicy details because, as we'll see, that's what Naomi does. But let's look. As we get our first glimpse through the window on this love story, we begin to see that there is much going on. Let's look kind of at verses 1 through 5 right there in front of you if you want to look down. So here they are, verse 1. Let's just start there. It says that 
This happens in the days when the judges ruled. Now, if you go back, um, if you were here before spring break, great. If you weren't, you can listen to them online. Um, the stories that came out of the book of Judges are hard. Many of them are very hard. And one of the refrains of Judges is that the people in Israel, God's people, right, the ones who were supposed to be following him, just, just weren't. They were doing whatever they wanted to do. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. And, um, and these judges would come. God would raise up these judges who would kind of deliver them for a little while, but then they would turn away and follow all kinds of other things. And, and things just weren't good in God's land. So in that day, here's a glimpse of a family who was living in God's land, and then a famine came, right? A famine came. There was, there was nothing to eat. Which is interesting because the, the name Bethlehem as a town literally means house of bread. And so in this place that was called the house of bread, there is no bread. There's nothing. And so Elimelech grabs his wife Naomi and their two sons and they head off to Moab. Lights flashing right here. From Judges chapter 3, Moab is one of Israel's chief enemies They hated Israel, and Israel hated them. They were supposed to have driven them out. They were tormenting Israel all the time. So here they are. Imagine how bad this is. They leave this promised land where God said, I will take care of you and be with you, and they go to enemy territory because they're that desperate. So they show up in Moab. Now, this is a bad situation. It's a bad situation physically, right, because they're escaping a famine, but it's a spiritually bad situation too because... While things were kind of chaotic in Israel and and people were doing whatever they wanted and they weren't following God, they were following all these other gods and all this stuff, Um, this family, by leaving Israel, is in a sense rejecting God. And what they're saying is, God, because God had promised that he would take care of his people, even in the midst of their rebellion. That's one of the themes of the Gospels. God does not leave us even when we leave him. Right? But, but God said, I will, I will take care of you. And they said, it's getting too hard to, to see how that's going to happen, God. We're going to go over here. And so they, le- they leave and go to Moab. It's a, it's a sad situation that gets worse, right? In verse 3, look there. It says, when they get to Moab, Elimelech dies. This is a bad situation for Naomi. Because in that culture, right, wives, uh, women, they, didn't, they weren't the primary workers, And so if a woman's husband dies, that's a very dangerous and precarious and scary situation for a woman. And so this is bad news for Naomi, but it's not the worst news because she has two sons still who can work and take care of her and provide for her needs. But then it actually gets a little bit worse for Naomi because her sons get married. Okay? Now, some of you will be mothers someday and you will have sons. And when your sons get married, you may think, oh, this is awesome. I'm getting a daughter. But what you're actually getting is someone who's taking your son from you. You can ask my mom. She has three sons. And um, so, uh, so Naomi's kids, her sons, are getting married. Now their allegiance is split. They have wives to take care of and presumably their own families. And so, yes, they would take care of Naomi, but it's just not like it was. So it's getting sadder and sadder and harder and harder for Naomi And then here in verse 5 is the juiciest detail of all. Her sons die. So here's the setup. Naomi is in a foreign land, we might say in enemy territory, and she has nobody to take care of her. She is alone. This is terrifying 
uh, for a woman in that culture, and even we can imagine uh, maybe for us. So Ruth and Orpah, they could, and actually Naomi encourages them to return to their father's house or to go and find other husbands and be taken care of by them. Right? That was fully within their right. She was their mother-in-law. They, they owed her no allegiance, really. So the narrator of these five verses is just kind of these details, these juicy details are coming one after another. And he's setting up this picture to show us that this situation is awful, the, that Naomi's prospects for survival are slim, much less hope for a decent life. It is just not looking good at all, right? And so um, <clears throat> this is, sometimes we'll joke with each other uh, and we'll say things like, oh man, you know, my, my blue sweater, my crew neck blue sweater, I got a hole in it, but that's okay because I still have my blue V-neck sweater, right? First world problems. And we kind of joke about the, the real difficulties we have in this life. Um, this is like the anti-first world problem. <laughs> this is a 1400, 1500 BC real world problem. This is not good. A few of our students, actually about 25 of you guys went to Chicago last week, and Uh, Part of an inner city immersion experience such as happens with sunshine is your eyes just get open to, for many of you, a whole new realm of the world you've not seen. Maybe you've seen, but you've never been in the midst of it. And one of the things that I love about Sunshine Gospel Mission and the way that uh, they kind of handle those weak projects is they go through a simulation on, on what causes poverty. Right? And they give three categories, and the first category that they talk about is circumstances. So sometimes people are just living their life, and uh, a tornado happens here in Oklahoma, and their house gets devastated, and they don't have the right amount of insurance, and so they, they're underwater on their house, and they can't pay to have it rebuilt, and, and so they're out on the streets. Or maybe you have a wreck, or maybe you run into somebody, and you don't have the right insurance. Like just circumstances of life, medical bills, stuff. And those things can drive people into poverty. And there's a second category, which we would call choices or, or moral sin or moral failure, that, that you make a bad choice, and that choice leads to some negative consequence for your life. And a number of those things pile up, and you end up out on the street, whether that's an addiction or whether that's some sort of abuse or imprisonment or, or whatever it is. The third category is injustice, that there is systemic oppression and injustice in this world that that it's really hard to get a job if you're homeless because you can only have an address to write on an application for a home. Like, the system kind of starts to work against you. And so let's take a look at Naomi's life real quick. Like, what was it for her? What is causing this difficulty in her life? It's certainly not sin that we know of. We have no record that Naomi had done anything terrible and that she's kind of like reaping the consequence of her choices. Certainly there's circumstantial difficulty here. People are dying around her who are supposed to be taking care of her. There's nothing anybody can do about that to circumstance. Maybe there was some sort of systemic or injustice thing going on there that maybe she wasn't high enough in the totem pole to get food. We don't know, but it's a very bad situation, and it's not her fault. The details of her life are not her fault, and the narrator is trying to get us to feel the weight of that. It doesn't seem that anything good can come from this. But you would have to think that if something good was going to come, that it would look like this. That some guy, some man would sweep in 
and take Naomi. And he would be the hero. He would be her Prince Charming. And they would kind of ride off into the sunset and she would be able to eat again. But friends, if you, if you know the narrative of the Bible, if you know how God works, you have to know that he loves to use unlikely heroes. And so in this passage, we don't see a Prince Charming swooping in. We see Naomi, her daughter-in-law. In verse 16 and 17, she pledges her life to Naomi and says this, Stop urging me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death departs me from you. Look, this is an amazing pledge of fidelity. It's such an amazing statement that in many weddings this statement is read. That like, it's this this bonding thing. In fact, right there when it says that that, um, Orpah kissed Naomi but Ruth clung to her. The word right there for cling is the same word used in Genesis 2 where God looks at the man and the woman and says, for this reason you will leave your father and mother and cling to your wife, cling to one another. It's, it's a covenant. It's a commitment. It's like, look, I'm not leaving. And Ruth steps in and says, I'm not leaving you, Naomi. And friends, you have to know that when, when Ruth says I'm not leaving, it does not make Naomi's problems go away. But what it says is, I'm with you in the midst of your problems. And in that moment, Ruth for us is a picture of Jesus. Ruth is a picture of God for us because what God says is, look, I'm not promising that if you follow me, that if you're with me, then I will take away all of the juicy, bad details of your life and I'll make it all great. He never promises that in all Scripture. He doesn't. But what he says is, I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you in the midst of your life falling apart. I am with you in the midst of all of the juicy details going out of control. I am with you. I am with you. I am with you. I am clinging to you. Ruth shows us a picture of God in this passage. So how does Naomi respond? What does she do in the midst of these juicy, difficult details? She sees God right there in the midst of it. That's the second thing tonight, that she sees God in those juicy details. In verse 6, we kind of get the narrator shifts his focus a little bit. The writer shifts his focus, and we we see Naomi um, back in these fields of Moab, and she's presumably gleaning these leftovers, right? So imagine a farmer, as they go out and they would take all the fruit or all the vegetable produce out of the fields, they would leave back the stuff that wasn't that great. And so here's Naomi most likely swooping in and getting whatever she can so she can eat. But she's out in the field and she hears, look right there, it says that she hears that Yahweh, that the the Lord, that is Israel's God, their covenant God, that he had visited his people, which means that he he was giving them food again, that the famine was going to be over. And so... So let's think about all that had gone wrong. All, she goes to Moab, her husband dies, her sons get married, her sons die, nothing's going right. And yet right in the middle of that, Naomi has not pledged her faithfulness yet. That's in verse 16. But right in the middle of that craziness, she hears that God is still present, that he's still doing things. She said, look, he's, he showed up back in Israel and he's brought, he's brought rain. And so he's right there in the midst of this devastation. And so... So maybe I'll go back. 
She's interpreting the events around her in relation to God and saying, God is here. He hasn't left me. It would be so easy for her to say, God is nowhere to be found. She's saying, God came. He's back in Israel. I'm going to go back. Then in verse 8, she turns to them, to, to Naomi and Ruth and says, sorry, to Ruth and Orpah and says, hey, I'm going back to Israel because they've got food now. I can go back there and be taken care of. She says, go return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may, sorry, grant that you may find rest each one in the house of her husband. So here's what Naomi's doing. Don't miss this. Naomi is looking at these Moabite women who did not follow Yahweh, who were not They didn't follow the God of Israel. And Naomi is invoking a blessing on them. She's saying, may the Lord bless you. May he deal kindly with you. May he take care of you. Have you ever ever sought blessing on behalf of your enemies? The the very kind of people and culture that was around you and, and they weren't just like you. And maybe not enemies, but maybe not, they're not your friends and And Naomi is saying, bless you, the Lord bless you, my Lord bless you. This is a jarring statement if you were a Jewish person reading this. You're like, no, you can't do that. They are the bad people. God only loves us, Israelites. And Naomi is invoking a blessing for them. Who does that? Who loves outsiders like that? God does. God loves outsiders all day long. And he calls Christians to love outsiders all day long. He calls us to love all kinds of people around us, to pray for those who persecute us, to enter into the world's mess, and to get dirty with it and in it. Christians are to be a people who bring redemption and sweetness to the people around them. Verse 13, Naomi says, Look, I don't want you to experience this bitterness alongside me. And Orpah says, Okay, I'll stay. Right, there's this back and forth, no, go, no, or yes, stay, no, go, no, 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 no. And finally, Orpah says, I'm going to stay. But Ruth clings to her. Where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. Naomi sees God in all these juicy, difficult details. He has not left her, and she gets that. I was having a conversation with a friend a couple of days ago, and this person was talking about how discouraging it is that Uh, So many of the conversations that she was having with her friends and people just tend to be all about the future. And I can't wait until right before it's spring break. It's I can't wait until spring break. And then now that it's after spring break, I can't wait until the summer. I can't wait until I graduate or I can't wait until I get engaged or I can't wait until I get married or I can't wait until I have a kid. All of this kind of hope and joy circumstantially is put off in the future as if right now doesn't matter at all. And I'm going to tell you that that is a way to live. You can live that way. You can always be looking forward to the next big thing, to the next big vacation, or to the next whatever, concert, whatever it is for you. And that way of living is going to to absolutely thoroughly wreck your present view of reality. Because do you think, have you ever considered that God is calling you to be present and to see Him in the details of your life right now? What is He doing right now in your life? Let's get some categories for that. If your life sucks right now, if it's hard situationally or whatever, instead of just sitting around and kind of moaning about that and saying, oh, my life's terrible, blah, 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 whatever it is, have you ever paused and actually taken time to ask the question, I wonder, I wonder 
what God's doing right now. I wonder where God is in the midst of this difficult thing in my life. I wonder if He might be trying to teach me something. Is this a product of choices that I've made? Is this difficult thing a product of choices that I've made? Do you ever pause to look at the details of your life and wonder if God is there trying to teach you something? Even if it's hard. What about if it's just kind of blah? What if it's just kind of mediocre and normal? It's not that exciting or it's not that terrible. Do you ever pause to say, you know, what we, we all kind of hate that stage. We feel like we're not growing. We feel like life's not exciting. We're kind of just like, uh, can't wait till the next thing. Do you know that God loves, he loves the mundane. He loves the normalcy. He loves to just say, yeah, go live a faithful life. You don't have to always be on fire for Jesus. It is okay to love God in the mundane details of life and to love others. It doesn't have to be sexy, y'all. Is God at work in the boring times? Is he in those details? What about if it's good? What about if like you're really killing it and life's going great and you got the job you wanted? What if you got the guy or you got the girl or maybe you're engaged, maybe you're going to get married? Do you ever pause in the midst of those situations in the details and instead of just saying, yes, this is awesome, I deserved it, I worked so hard in college to get that job and I finally got it, it's just paid off. Are you so privileged to think that that is all there is or can you not for a moment stop and say, God, you're the one who has blessed me. You gave me this job. You gave me this guy or this girl who likes me. You gave me a family that doesn't hate me. You gave me parents that didn't abuse me. Praise you, God. Can you ever stop and look at the details of your life and say, God, where are you? Naomi's doing that. She's interpreting her situations, uh, her situation with God right in the midst of it all. What is God saying to you in those juicy details? But Naomi doesn't stop there. She doesn't just say God is in the details. In this passage, we see that God is the God of the juicy details. Look at verse 22 right there. It says, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, was with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So here it is. Naomi returns to the promised land, to her people, She's back in safe territory. There are presumably she would have relatives or clans, people that would take care of her. She's back. Crisis averted. But don't miss this, that out of her great love for Naomi, Ruth willingly takes the position that Naomi unwillingly had in Moab. Ruth is now a foreigner in this land. She's really not even related to Naomi anymore. I mean, not by blood. It's, she's her mother-in-law, but it's not really still her mother-in-law. So Ruth, out of her great love for Naomi, leaves her place of comfort and enters into a foreign land, a place of much hardship and trial, and it's not all certain that they're going to be taken care of yet. So Ruth, because she loves Naomi, does this. She abandons everything she has for the sake of another Does that sound familiar to you? Does that sound like someone else in the Bible? Listen to how the Apostle Paul talks about Jesus in Philippians 2. He says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, 
having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That's like Ruth. She, she wasn't being selfish. She wasn't about herself. She was loving Naomi. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. Paul's saying, be this way, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, didn't account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see that, that again, Ruth is picturing for us Jesus? That she willingly leaves her comfort, her place of security, her place of, of familiarity, and she enters into a foreign land. Jesus, likewise, leaves heaven in all of its comforts because he loved his people. He said, I'm clinging to you. In order for me to get you back, I have to enter into your world. And it's going to be uncomfortable. And Paul says he didn't count that equality with God's son to be grasped. He didn't just stay in heaven, but he humbled himself. To the point of death even, Jesus went all the way. He was Ruth par excellence. He was Ruth 2.0. He went the whole way and said, I'm not stopping at just entering your world. I'm going to become the very thing that you fear that you are. We fear that we are separated from God because we are sinful. Jesus says, I'm going to become sin for you. And on the cross, he does. And God abandons him for that. God says, I have to punish sin. I hate it. I have to deal with it. And on the cross, God deals with sin in Jesus. And Jesus is put to death. And he lays in the tomb. Because sin does that. It kills things. It kills us from the inside out. And at the resurrection, what God is saying is he brings Jesus from the dead. He's saying, yes, your sin kills you. But if you, if you know Jesus, if you believe in Him, you will be brought to life in a new way. You will be given new life, eternal life even. So Ruth, this chapter 1 of Ruth is the beginning of a love story. And Ruth doesn't know how this is going to end. Let's think about it in real time. She's just pledged her love to Naomi. She's going back to Israel or Judah or Bethlehem with Naomi. She doesn't know what's going to come. She's just told Naomi, I'm going to be with you. Your God, my God, your people, my people, your house, my house, I'm with you. She doesn't know that she is about to meet a guy named Boaz. And he's a good man. And she doesn't know that she and Boaz will get married. And she has no way of knowing that their great-grandson will be King David. Who was, if you remember from the refrain of Judges, says there, there was no king in the land. So everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. She doesn't know that that her great-grandson is going to be the great leader and ruler of Israel who would lead them in peace for years and years and who would be a godly king and return them to worship him. She has no way of knowing that because she hasn't even met Boaz yet. But she has met Naomi's God. And for her, that was enough. She said, your God is going to be my God. I've seen you, Naomi. I've seen how you love the people around you. I've seen your faithfulness. I am joining my wagon to you and to your God. And friends, Ruth has absolutely no way of knowing 
that her greater, 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 great-grandson is going to be Jesus, the great king, the forever king, who wouldn't just give his people rest and security for a few decades. He came to bring rest and peace and security forever. So that's why in Matthew chapter 1, it's giving the genealogy of Jesus, and it said, the son of Boaz, wife of Ruth, husband of Ruth, Ruth is the great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus. She didn't know it was going to end that way. She had no way to know that. And what Jesus says to us in the midst of the details of our lives is He says, I'll take those details. I'm going to enter into the world and I'm going to redeem those details. I'm going to take your story and all of its beauty and all of its brokenness And I'm going to purchase those from you. I'm going to buy your details so your story becomes my story and my story becomes your story. See, Ruth is a love story between Ruth and Boaz, but it's a picture of a greater love story that is between Jesus and his church, between Jesus and his people. And here's the best news about Jesus. He says, I will never, ever, leave you or forsake you. Friends, you cannot out Jesus' love and His grace for you. That does not give us permission to go do what we want. But ha- do you know a love that deep? Have you ever met anyone who says, I don't care. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how bad you do in the future. I am with you forever. And it is only when you know that kind of love that you will begin to change. So it's an invitation. It's an invitation to the love story of God for His people through Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we do hope and pray that this semester, if not even tonight, that you would convince us that your love story, that you're at work building and writing in this world, is not yet complete. Because you're still inviting people into it. And Lord, I would guess that in a room this size, that there are people in here who did things last week that they wish they hadn't done, who have done things this year or this semester that they're really pretty ashamed of. I pray that you would give them crystal clear vision to see that you are a God of the details and that you sent your son to purchase those details and to redeem them and to begin to rewrite our story into your story.